That was true, and I'm not an opponent of, of digital media, obviously. I think that um, platforms and digital media helped a lot to, to make music culture or culture more participatory. But they are getting so um, sneaky in, in appropriating what happens and branding it. Lorenz Grunewald Schukala is talking about branding arenas in the music industry. Lorenz is a project manager at The Hig and himself a musician. Somehow the, the perspective of playing in, in um, bars every night and, and there's a lot of drinking and it's late, it's a lot of driving that didn't resonate so much with me. In this episode of Exploring Digital Spheres, we talk about how big brands like Red Bull and Telecom are inserting themselves into music culture. By organizing music festivals, building high-tech music studios, these brands are not only presenting themselves in this culture, they are essentially shaping the way the music develops as well. Lorenz Grunewald-Schukala has been researching this phenomenon, but first we talk a bit about how we ended up in the academic world. Here is our conversation. Then there is, there's of course, then the moment that, oh, it was not entirely conscious. You decided to sort of engage with music in a different way. But then there is also the moment that you make a switch and think like, no, actually... This is what I want to do. This is, at this moment, uh, a topic that I want to sort of really dive into. Yeah, no. I don't think I work like that. Um, it's more like at a, sometimes some, some doors open and you see if you want to go through them or not. Um, so, so staying on academia was because we, we did a bigger um, project on the music economy in Berlin when I was a master's student. Um, it was together with the Berlin Music Commission, and it was very interesting. It was about how the how the usage of uh, new digital media um, that it was like ten years ago, right, um, um, changed how music corporations and also artists um, worked here in Berlin. And after we did that, my um, my supervisor he um, offered me the, the chance to do a PhD with him, and so I, I thought maybe I could try that for a couple of years and got a post at a university here in Berlin as a research assistant and started the PhD. Um, what was your PhD about? The PhD, I, I don't have it yet. I still have to finish. It's it's almost done, I can say. Um, and, it's, and it's no joke, it's really almost done. Um, it's it's about the um, the ways that um, the relationship between um, brands, like big corporate brands like Red Bull or the Telecom, um, interrelate with um, music, um, more especially the music industry or music economy and music culture, something that has been going on in history um, ever since there is a music industry. But um, now you can kind of see that there's a new quality now that digital platforms, sorry, that digital platforms um, arrived, um, stuff is changing. You can also see that more and more money is being spent by brands to do something with music culture. Um, and you can see that that the involvement gets much deeper. So brands, they stay longer in music culture and they kind of build infrastructures um, on which music culture can, can happen. Um, you, you were saying um, ever since the music industry has been going on there has been some influence yeah. by brands etc et like what do we have to think about in terms of when the music industry mm -hmm. becomes a thing and, and what kind of influence are we talking about then yeah. so I, I mean i'm a media and communication scholar so for me i start when um, print media um, arrived and 
you can you can track kind of a music industry back to what they call the Tin Pan Alley, which was a um, street in, in in the United States where a lot of um, sheet music publishers were. So the business model of the music industry back then was to create hit songs. They had songwriters working all the time, creating new kind of Schlagermusik um, and printing sheet music for people to buy and take it home and play it on the pianos. And when is this? This is around um, early 20th century, 1900. And um, you can see already back then that um, corporations, which were not brands at the time, because it was much more product-based um, product what, what corporations did, they used these sheet music um, to place advertisement, for example. And there's, there's a funny example of a company called Beecham. They had the Beecham's music portfolio, and it was, was like a catalog um, or a, a yeah, catalog of, of sheet music which they would um, sell in pharmacies or just leave there for people to take away. Um, and Beecham's, they produced pills to make your, your to relieve your stomach after you had uh, too much food or something like this. So, But this, this seems relatively sort of harmless in a way, you know, with all the things that we now know. Uh, printing uh, a picture or a name on some sheet music doesn't necessarily change the infrastructure on how this music is, is produced. No, not at that time, um, probably. I mean, it's hard to get numbers um, on that time um, in a way to measure um, how much money came, came from these um, corporations um, to kind of um, see, see how important it was for the business model of the music industry back then. But it kind of evolved from there. So if you look at the 1930s and look at um, kind of white jazz music, um, then it becomes obvious that that corporations and brands were becoming more important in kind of a uh, structural view because most of what you could hear in white jazz music on the radio was um, funded by to tobacco companies like Camel. So all the shows were um, where the hosts and their bands would play, um, they, they would be called uh, like Camel Caravan Show or something. And they would fund any anything of it, or all of it. So the whole thing was set up by, by a tobacco brand, um, and it was funded completely by, a, by an industry that is not originally in music. And the musicians and the hosts, they would smoke during the shows, and there's, there's some really nice um, takeouts from, uh, on YouTube from these kind of shows, and they would say how, how awesome the cigarette is, that they are actually smoking, um, so it's really funny. And, and then you can start to see that, that the advertising industries and corporations are becoming more important for the, for the business models of the music industry. I'd say that what you just described, this Camel Caravan show, um, that sounds way more like what you were describing earlier about Red Bull organizing something. Could you maybe talk a little bit about comparing these two and how, for example, yeah, it is very similar, but maybe also what the differences are? I mean... Um, the differences are that it's much more is going on now. So if, if I can give you a couple of examples, um, the telecom has a, has a program called Electronic Beats, where they do um, lots of different activities um, in electronic music. So they have uh, concert evenings, they um, have whole festivals which last for a couple of days that they completely host by themselves. They have an, a magazine on electronic music which was a printing thing um, for some time. Now it's um, more, more block-based. Um, 
they have um, kind of a newcomer pro program where they um, help young musicians well at least they say they help them that's that's what they claim um, um, to to get heard to get seen um, I already mentioned the studios that Red Bull is building. Red Bull also, until last year, had the Red Bull Music Academy, which is kind of a big workshop um, program for DJs and people from avant-garde electronic music, where they fly them to cosmopolitan cities and have a whole kind of quarter in the city built for them to have to, to do gigs, to have studios, to um, workshop together to talk to music icons that they invite like Brian Eno, Erica Badu and that is surrounded by a whole network of events and festivals that Red Bull um, does internationally. And, and Red Bull is doing this because? Well um, they, they're doing this for, for many reasons um, and I look at that perspective from a, from a communications perspective. And for, for me, it's about they're doing this um, to create some momentum for themselves in, in digital flows. So I, I call these, these kind of structures that they create, the festivals, um, the studios, um, the concerts, I call these kind of, they are brand arenas. And that comes from obviously Roman uh, arenas, but also modern arenas like the Mercedes-Benz arena you have at Ostbahnhof. And this is kind of a spatial, structural metaphor to show that um, these structures are built by somebody for some purpose. They, they don't have control over anything that happens inside the arena, but they have some control. If you look at the Red Bull Studio, for example, um, it, it's so well made, so strategically made, that artists who go to the Red Bull Studio to record, I've done some participatory observations there, They are posting on Instagram all the time. They're using the Snapchat all the time. Every 15 minutes, they do something to give their fans, right? And it's almost not possible to take a picture inside there without not having a Red Bull logo behind you, having a Red Bull can um, on your DJ desk, um, whatever. They will even offer you very friendly uh, Red Bull to drink all the time. So if you take all of that together and say that these are brand arenas, they kind of afford through their design that people are sharing stuff all the time, which becomes branded in the moment that a, a picture is created. And that way they kind of guarantee that they end up in digital flows um, where people share stuff and, and view stuff and comment stuff. And that's one of the things that I call momentum because it's my hypothesis that at the core of um, these brand related uh, sorry these music related brand strategies is that they want to create momentum kind of a, a moving visibility for themselves the, the the people that are on these in these festivals the artists that are in these studios um, are they not aware that they're part of this massive sort of branding structure they are very aware yeah um, do they care it's hard to say because what people do and what they say is um, something different. Um, when I go to to, to festivals um, as a kind of an ethnographer doing observations, um, I'm, I'm talking about fans now, um, they will go there and enjoy themselves and like the music and drink their, their drink that they have to drink. Um, and they won't talk much about brands being present. So if you start asking them about brands, then they will 
have an opinion about it obviously and they will say oh it's 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 too much branding it's it's not subtle enough um these kinds of things so they they will have an opinion but it's not what they do and you have to be reflective about this if if you do ethnographic research because if i start asking them then it's kind of a researcher induced um, discourse um, so it's not easy to say if if they care. You, you have to you'd have to um, define more what what care means. And there is an um, an Australian researcher. His name is Nicholas Carra. He did something similar um, a while ago, and he used Marx and and uh, Zizek's notion of cynicism to kind of explain this, um, because he says that it's not like in Marx times where people were unaware that the the world they live in was structured by economic interests. Um, this is not the case anymore at these festivals. The brands are everywhere. You can, you can see them. It's, it's obvious that the thing you need to, to do music uh, or to enjoy music um, is funded by brands, is made by brands. But it's hard to get out of that structure anyway. So um, in his opinion, opinion, people stay quiet or become cynical about this because they have to kind of talk about it in a normative way, but the way that they can act, um, they can change so much. Now, uh, one very important aspect is, of course, also what this whole strategy by these brands means for music yeah. in general. I mean, you say, yeah, they, they create these spaces, they create these experiences, people consume it, um, but it has also an impact on what music is being created, what music makes it mm -hmm. to people. Maybe you can talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, the, the tr this term momentum that I try to develop, um, it's kind of twofold. So for, for the one thing, it's about these digital flows. Um, they want to be shared, like, like a viral campaign. You know, back in the days you had viral campaigns and um, brands were hoping that people would share stuff um, a lot. Um, it's, it's not viral because it's not a virus where people do anything unconsciously. Um, they choose to choose to share. Um, and today, if you have these brand arenas where it's so subtle and informed by the material um, base of, of these brand arenas, um, it's not kind of a viral campaign anymore, but it becomes part of all the music cultural practice. There's almost, it gets harder to do anything else if you go to a festival than um, use your smartphone and do something for a brand. Um, you can't escape it very much. And also, of course, fans and musicians as well need this momentum. And that's kind of the second um, dimension that I'm trying to um, sketch out. Um, I think that through the brands, and we have to talk about digital platforms as well, um, these music fields, um, they become also reconfigured in a way that momentum gets more important. So now you will have a hard time as a as a musician if you're not visible online. Um, your kind of worth um, to work with a brand, certainly, um, but also to work with other players in the music industry, um, is more and more um, um, generated through your ability to create momentum. If you have a lot of followers, if you have um, a lot of visibility, um, if you can create content that people like and will, will share, um, then you become a more kind of respected member um, of the field and your options to do something uh, will increase. It's, it's what Bourdieu called um, symbolic capital. So kind of from the outside through platforms and brands, uh, music fields as well um, get changed in a way. Now, 
the brands would tell you or would tell us that what they're doing is for the greater good of our societies that through through their uh, money the the money that they put in there uh, people get to see these stars they get to develop themselves they get to get um, unique content and beautiful music um, is that right well, it's not wrong. Um, Where are we heading? I mean, they certainly don't state that, that they're doing good for society, but um, the usual, usual way they would say is we are supporting musicians. We are giving musicians a platform, you know, these, these kinds of metaphors. But I'd say that like that, that's... Uh, I, I can imagine them just saying, like, well, yeah, but, like, of course we have these products and we make money from the products, but we also, you know, want to do something. We want to show our social uh, responsibility and stuff like that. You know, I, I feel like they are putting it in this light of this is, this is us giving back in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way they try to sell it most of the time. Um, but obviously you can see a power relation there very easily because um, the ways that brands and platforms change these, these fields, um, it's not easy to get away from if you're a musician. If you're a musician that doesn't want to work with a brand, you're going to have a hard time. And usually they, they accept it. They, um, they take the money. There's even called a term they use called Schmerzensgeld, I don't know if you would know how to translate that. Yeah, very painful money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pain, pain relief money, um, which they use when they say the brand is, is, is so bad or the thing that we have to do with them is so bad um, that it doesn't increase our reputation, um, but we take the, the pain relief money um, anyway. But um, it, most of the time it's not about money. It is if, if they book a, an artist for a festival. But if you look at these studios or these festivals, um, or I myself, when we were with a band, we had a deal with Volkswagen and they gave us a, a tour bus just for a year. You know, and if you have these opportunities, you can do more stuff. Um, if you have more money, you can do more stuff. So working with a brand increases um, your potential to do something in the field that you're in. And artists need that and they can really get out of it. There are not so many artists who do not work with brands. Maybe, maybe I can ask you as a sort of a final question. You, you bring up this very interesting example of the, the Volkswagen bus. Yeah. So how, 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 do you, how do you see the sort of balance between yeah, the support that you get, which is great if you're, especially if you're beginning, and even if you're probably at the top, you know, you're still getting the support of a, of a venue, of a festival. And at the same time, creating a sort of a nice power balance when, where artists can actually make whatever they want to make and people can enjoy the music without having to snap a selfie with the brand in it. Yeah. I mean, the, the power you have over a brand changes with how, how much momentum you already have. If you're Coldplay, which was one of the cases I looked at as well, you can dictate a lot um, to a brand. If you're a newcomer, um, not so much. But I'm not sure, I mean, this, this is important, obviously. Um, what, what can you um, put in your contract if you work with a brand? How much power you have there? But I think that overall this, this value or this category of momentum um, gets more important and gets employed by platforms and brand, and you, you can't escape that. So what you see is um, that it's getting harder to be an artist if you can create this kind of momentum if you can't um, get people to post stuff about you and the brand you are working with 
And this is kind of um, probably more abstract, but also more concerning thing probably because it's getting harder to imagine um, different ways um, how music culture could work. You know, it's it's getting harder to find a space that is not branded. But but to me, it sounds so ridiculous in a way because with our digital society and with platforms and with social media, it seems like there is a multitude of options now that you can bring yourself way more than there were in the 1960s, for example. It's like somehow it seems easier to circumvent brands now than it was in the 1960s when all the venues were owned by tobacco companies, for example. Mm. Um Yes, I think that that was true, and I'm not a opponent of of digital media. Obviously, I think that um, platforms and digital media helped a lot to to make music culture or culture more participatory. But they are getting so um, sneaky in in appropriating what happens and branding it, um, which is why they do these arenas, which is why they use the material structures that we have to use to create branded content. And if you are at a festival and you don't um, um, use a brand hashtag or something, they have um, bots who can track that you were at the festival and they will um, comment on, on your post with a branded hashtag. So it's, it's, it's not getting easier to, to evade it, I guess. There are um, examples of festivals like the Fusion Festival, um, where they really strategically say there are no brands allowed here. Um, they even try if they use televisions or um, projectors to to tape away the, the the logos, but these spaces are decreasing. That was Lorenz Grunewald Schukala. More on his research available in the notes of the show. And of course, if you want to know more about other research projects organized by the Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society, or visit one of the many events they are organizing, visit hiig.de. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, if you're 20 minutes wiser about the internet, don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. This was Exploring Digital Spheres. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>